Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Kotaku Split Screen, the only podcast that can get you pictures of Spider-Man. It's September 13th, 2018, and we're back to talk a little more about the two big games we're both playing, Destiny 2 and Spider-Man. First, Jason and I share some more thoughts on Destiny 2's new Forsaken expansion, which we're both still impressed by, particularly by the way Bungie has changed their approach to writing and storytelling. I'm then joined by special guest, the wonderful YouTube film critic Lindsay Ellis, to talk about Disney, Star Wars, fascism, and her approach to criticism, after which I will excitedly gush to Jason about the PS4's new Spider-Man game, the story, the characters, the music, and that fabulous web swinging. Stick around. Welcome back to the show. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Kirk Hamilton. I am the editor at large for Kotaku.com, and I am joined by the Tony Stark to my Peter Parker, Mr. Jason Schreier, news editor at Kotaku. Hello, Jason. Hello, Kirk. Does that mean that I am mentoring you in the ways of being a superhero? You are. It means that you designed the outfit that I'm wearing right now as well. Mm. And then at the end of this podcast, you're going to be like, I don't feel so good, Mr. Schreier, and he'll just disappear. Everyone's going to cry so much. It's going to be the saddest thing. And then later I will reveal that I ad-libbed the line, the most moving line <laughs> in the Kotaku split screen Infinity War crossover Kirk, movie. I have some exciting news for you. Do you? I'm all ears. NFL football is back. Wow, that was and, the letdown. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> and while I am generally conflicted about the NFL because it is run by a bunch of craven, corrupt old men um, who, uh, as I tweeted, embody the worst of America, um, I am very excited about football and I'm especially very excited because the Jets are actually going to be good this year and have a quarterback who is a franchise star for the first time ever. And uh, I mean, it's safe to say we've only seen him play one one game, but I think it's safe to say that he's the greatest quarterback of all time. So uh, I'm very excited. So I'm going to save the recording of you saying the Jets are really good this year, and we're going to put th- we're going to remix that into sort of a song that will then mm-hmm. play at the end of the year when you're angry because the Jets are so bad, and the song at will the just end be of like the, the Jets, the Jets are, are going to be good this year. The Jets they're going to be good this year over and over and over again. Uh, yeah, it'll be great because the Jets will be like like 14 and two, and having they'll just have made the playoffs, and it'll be fantastic. It'll be nice, like, you so. sound confident, so I at least appreciate your confidence. Here's the thing, Kirk. Uh, mm. Being a Jets fan doesn't allow much room for happiness, so uh, I think that you gotta you gotta give us give us a little space here, give us a little a little room for delusions here. Um, can I use that to make a segue to our first topic? Because yeah, <laughs> I think please. I got a good one. If being a Jets fan means that you just really never are truly happy and that you need to embrace the moments of happiness when you get them, that sounds sort of similar to being a fan of Destiny, the video mm, game. Which, that is a good segue. Which also is typically something people feel angry about and yet has moments of brightness like it is experiencing right now. <laughs> the Destiny experience <clears throat> is playing Destiny with your friends on voice chat and screaming, why am I playing this game? 
There have been times where we've probably said that, right? Over the last week, I feel like there have definitely been some oh, yeah, low points sure. of just, for oh sure. my God, okay, I've been playing this for, for four hours. Yeah, and you I, were you and I were talking. You were like, why am I playing this instead of going to play Spider-Man or like something else? <laughs> right, the other game that we're point. going to talk about again today. Yeah, today is going to kind of be a repeat of last week, but with more information on all sides. So we're going to talk and about... And with an interview, and with a brand new interview. And with a brand new interview as well, which will break things up nicely. So there will be some nice, uh, fun stuff in the middle there. But yeah, let's uh, let's let's talk about Destiny Two some more. Yeah, so why don't we start with this question? We got a really interesting question a few weeks ago from a listener. Um, why don't you read us this one because it's pretty interesting, and I want to hear your take. Okay, here's the question. This is from Daryl. Hi, Kirk. Hi, Jason. Love the show. I recall Kirk commenting a few weeks ago on how peculiar it is to see a powerful studio like Bungie making such significant changes in design direction of Destiny 2 in reaction to the pushback from the vocally engaged part of their player base. I noticed last week that Jason referenced listener feedback as the basis for keeping the game's topics on split screen at the front of the podcast and covering the non-game stuff near the end. While the two operations are not running at the same scale, split screen being clearly a more significant and wider-reaching platform... Uh, Daryl writes, the two are directly comparable. To, wit- to what degree does the creator feel obliged to change their art for their audience? Are you able to share with us any directions that you have taken or constraints that you have applied to the design of split screen that come from the commercial objectives of the podcast versus the creative vision? So, okay, so I have a lot of thoughts on this topic. I find it really fascinating. But first of all, so to say that the commercial objectives and the creative vision are mutually mutually exclusive um, is not necessarily the case. And oftentimes the creative vision is like, so my philosophy as a writer and a reporter and an author has always been that you don't write for yourself. You write for readers. And if you're getting feedback from readers that feels valid and strong to you, then changing your art to accommodate them is maybe making your art better. And um, when it comes to podcasts, the weekly podcasts that we're doing every week for our listeners, um, of course, we're going to listen to feedback and change things based on that because it can be really helpful. And it doesn't mean listen to every, listening to every single thing that we hear from every single reviewer or else we would just never talk about our political views on anything, which we're not going to stop doing. Um, but but it does mean taking in that feedback and using it to uh, like change the way we do things. And um, because this is a live production, it's and by live, I don't mean we're performing it live. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. It never ends. It just goes on from week to week to week. We can change it as much as we want, and we can try to make it better. And live games like Destiny, quote-unquote games as a service, are exactly the same way and kind of need to be listening and reacting to their players in order to survive. And um, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about video games in the modern age is that they can change based on what players say and what players want. And that's basically what Forsaken is. It's like Bungie saying, hey, Destiny 2 didn't work for the most hardcore players, so now we're going back to Destiny 1 and making everything confusing again. I think that's really interesting and very true about the ongoing nature in particular of of what we're doing and what they're doing and how those parallels sort of make those kinds of changes match. There is a difference. You know, you're talking about our art, in this case, our art being, you know, maybe we're writers or in this case, we're podcasters. There's Mm -hmm. sort of a difference depending on what you're doing. I mean, that's kind of what you were saying is because they're doing a a game as a service, because we're doing an ongoing podcast, we approach listener feedback in a certain way and we respond to it in a certain way there's a difference with you know say i make an album and someone tells me oh you know they give me feedback on that or like an artist who just makes more straightforward just art that is then presented
presented, um, you know, there's there's definitely going to be something different there. And there's even a difference between, you know, a single player game, like the way that uh, Bioware changed the ending of Mass Effect 3 after feedback. That was a little bit different than a service game. It was kind of a precursor, but it was parallel because that was a sort of a standalone piece of art that was then changed after the fact. And that led to a kind of an interest, a different, you know, a different sort of relationship. It's also true that in our case, you know, our podcast is about communicating. It's specifically designed to communicate with an audience. So our relationship with our audience is a little bit more back and forth because, you know, we're talking to you kind of directly. Like, I mean, I know all art and all whatever expression talks directly to the audience, but in a po- with a podcast in particular, <laughs> it's a lot more we're, literal here. Yeah, we're literally talking, you know, we're talking to one another, but we're really talking to you, the listener. And so when we hear from, the, from listeners, you know, oh, hey, you know, they talk too much about whatever at the beginning. I wish they would just talk about games, that kind of thing or any piece of feedback, it's more important for us to really listen to it just because we want to be sure we're communicating as well as possible uh-huh. because we're a communicative form of expression. To and also with. in this case, uh, I think that it was something that I had been thinking about anyway, and I also got some listener feedback about it, and I was like, you know what, this kind of makes more sense for the show. It adds a little more balance to the show, and I feel like it makes for makes for uh, a, a show that is more, I don't know, I like it better this way. I agree. Just- you know, there I listen to a lot of podcasts, and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some podcast beef. Uh, Slate has a podcast called Trumpcast that is wonderful, so maybe that's not a great way to start a beef. But mm-hmm. one thing I do notice with Trumpcast is they, you know, they're very, they have a lot of ads, they have a lot of sort of preamble stuff, they have some skits, they have this incredible Trump impersonator who reads Trump's tweets in, uh, like, almost every week they have him back. He sounds just like him. I actually don't like listening to him because he sounds too much like him, and Trump bums me out. But they Yeah, take this all sounds po- like the most depressing podcast. It, well, it's it's good. No, it's a lot of really good reporting, a lot of really good commentary. Their hosts are great. I mean, it's a, it's a very good show. But they do take a while to get to the meat of whatever each episode is. And I, I definitely find myself thinking like, man, it really took like five minutes to just get to the interview that, you know, is in the title that I wanted to hear. And I can understand people saying, you know, listening to the split screen or whatever and thinking, yeah, I want to hear about whatever the big new game is. These guys are right. kind of talking about whatever a wedding they went to or like whatever album they're listening to. And so in that case, too, it's it's totally that's valid feedback. So part of this is like that the feedback is valid, right? I think you know, pivoting maybe to Destiny 2, I think that the fact remains, or the fact stands, that as playing Forsaken, it is very clear that all of these changes the players were asking for are for the good. I mean, they have made the game better. So, are they, though? For the, yes. They're definitely for the grind. No, I think they're for the good. Uh, they're for the good of the game in a number of different ways that are all complicated and interlocking. This is all something I'm still sort of sorting out as I play the game and ponder my review. But yes, I think that by and large, the changes are for the good. Um, and, you know, what the ways that the changes made the game maybe more inconvenient or, or less good, I think, are things that are probably pretty easily fixed. Mm-hmm. But things like the weapon system or the way that they've changed the tone of the writing and re-embraced the lore and stuff like that is stuff that people have been asking for very explicitly for the year. And mm-hmm. it definitely, I think, in, to me, has made the game a lot stronger. Yeah. yeah, so I want to talk about something that you wrote about on the website and that I did yesterday. Great. Um, so I'll try not to get too spoilery for people who are really into Destiny and haven't seen this yet, but when you do a quest line called Ace of Spades, which starts off with like the most pain-in-the-ass step of killing invaders with a hand cannon and gambit, and it's right, really right. a pain-in-the-ass, but it's, it's worth It's actually doing called Cade's Will, which is something I Cade's had to remind Will. 
myself. It's to get the Ace of Spades, but it's called Cade's Will. So eventually, after doing all these tedious steps of just like grinding stuff, you get to this story mission, and it's very heavily linked to the plot of Forsaken, and it's delivered in this really cool way. It's almost like uh, you're going around and collecting a bunch of audio logs, Mm -hmm. and it's handled exceptionally well and written really well and just really interesting and just well handled. Like I found myself going, wow, holy crap, like this is great. Uh, I can't believe that I'm hearing this. Like this is fantastic stuff, like really emotional stuff and interesting stuff. Um, And that to me is like, wow, Destiny could, this could be what Destiny is instead of these big like high octane cutscenes with incredible production values. You could have just stuff like this and if more of Destiny handled storytelling in this way, I think that it would, it could be like a really special game. And already I think Destiny is, is special in the sense that it's you we it's the best game as far as like the, f- the way it feels to shoot aliens with plasma guns and stuff um it's uh, just a really good game in terms of spending time with your friends and bonding and raiding and all that good stuff. But in terms of storytelling, it's always been subpar. It's always been at best average. And with this, I kind of saw a glimpse of like the destiny that could be. Um, what, did you, what did you think of that whole thing? I feel like you had similar thoughts. I do. I, they're similar and different in a few ways. I, I will quibble with one thing you said, which is that the steps in the Cade's Will Quest are all tedious. I think the first one's a little off the gambit one. But Actually, I found them fairly rewarding to have to go and get precision kills in, in Crucible and sort of... To get kills? You have yeah, to kill because 250 it, it made me random... Really... No, no, no. I'm not talking about the Crucible one. I'm talking about killing enemies and strikes. You have to oh, kill well, that, 250 monsters. So the monsters way I see that is... Mm, I, this feels like a digression. Just, the, the way I see that is basically there's a stressful step and then a relaxing step and then a stressful step. So it's like Gambit is stressful, strikes are relaxing, Crucible is stressful, then collecting the things is relaxing. So I see it as kind of a pacing thing and it works for me. Anyways, but yeah, that's beside the point. In terms of the writing, I think that there's an interesting thing happening that we're going to see in the future. So Bungie has said that they're going to stop having as much of an A story in expansions and start focusing more on just new activities and, you know, the kind, the kind of the way that Warmind was going, where Warmind had a very, very short story campaign and then a whole bunch of stuff after the campaign. And people mm-hmm. love that because what they want to do is play Destiny. They don't care that much about watching cutscenes, as good as some of those cutscenes are. Um, Forsaken also seems that way. You know, this game is wildly opened up to me anyways after the story. But then again, the story itself was also good. And the reason that it's good and the reason that the quest you're setting in specific, the last quest of the Cade's, uh, Cade's Will quest is good, is because it's leaning into a part of Destiny's storytelling that has actually always been there, that um, is really good and has always been good. It's just been buried under these more, you know, loud, obvious, cutscene A stories. It's sort of the lore story. And we, I, we talked about this, I can't remember when, maybe a month ago, the idea of this type of storytelling, the Dark Souls-style storytelling, the way that thing that Hollow Knight does. Subtle storytelling. Yeah, subtle storytelling where it's only there if you want it. If you, you know, in Destiny 1, you had to read the Grimoire. But if you read the Grimoire, you found some really cool things. The Books of Sorrow, which are all about the origins of the Hive, are really cool. Um, anyone who's into this stuff, you probably know this, but there's a YouTuber who goes by My Name is Bife who does these really, really elaborate, really wonderful videos where they, he kind of narrates the tales of Destiny over, you know, various fan art and in-game stuff. And it really, the stories he's telling are in the game, and some of them are amazing. And um, it's kind of led to this, I think, he in particular, and a lot of people, you know, I've written about this stuff too. There's a post on Kotaku about, well, a story I'll talk about in a second that was all about this hidden story. That no one knew about. Yeah. And so I think that's led to more and more people just being aware of this part of Destiny's world 
world and they like it because it's really pretty good i mean it's good mm-hmm. interesting sci-fi fantasy lore and the more people are into it i think bungie has responded to that specifically in forsaken by putting a lot of that in there so the story i'm talking about is well the now story... there's even a lore tab in your like, right they've done a good job they put the grimoire read a bunch it, of yes. lore. yeah They've put the grimoire in the game. You don't have to go as far for it. So the story I'm talking about is the story of Dredgen Yor and Shin Malfor, which is on Kotaku. You can read the entire thing. It's called The Best Story in Destiny's Hidden Lore, post I wrote a couple of years ago. Uh, there are plenty of dramatic reenactment of, reenactments of this on YouTube as well. Basically, it's the story of uh, a renegade hunter who, be, you know, he, you know, the guardians use the light in Destiny. So they channel the light, sort of like the light side of the force. And he basically became a Sith, if you want to put it in Star Wars terms. He was a great Jedi. He was like Anakin Skywalker. And then he had this encounter with the Hive that left him kind of changed, and he gradually became darker and darker, and eventually he started killing Guardians and, like, harvesting their light for his gun, which was called Thorn. And then he killed the mentor of this guy, this guy named Jaren Ward. His, the mentor was... Oh, no, wait. I'm getting, am I getting it backwards? Um, he killed Jaren Ward. It doesn't matter. People can read no, it. No, no, no. It's okay. Topic. I don't want to get it right. He killed Jaren Ward, who was the mentor of Shin Malfor. So Shin Malfor was just a kid. Then he gets this gun called The Last Word. So there's the two like famous hand cannons in Destiny. Anyways, the one hunter, he hunts him down finally as an adult. And there's this whole thing where like Dredgen Yor kind of implies that he wanted him to have the gun and he wanted him to hunt him down and become more powerful for some reason. And it's all very mysterious, but also just super rad. And he pulls out the golden gun at the last minute and it's just really dramatic and he blows him away and he's like, the last word, yours, not mine. Anyway, it's, it's all pretty good shit. It's way better than any of the stories that were like in Vanilla Destiny one the story that i actually saw this pointed out on reddit and i noticed this when i was playing too the story of forsaken mirrors the story of jaren ward shin malfar and dredgen mm-hmm. yor it's the story of like a fallen you know mentor who's then avenged by his student and against a dark guy and so that is all very cool and then there are and then also the ace of spades quest kind of exactly so that. there are all these hints and elsewhere first off they say the words the last word i think three separate times over the course of the campaign someone says you'll have the last word and i always wanted the last word and i have the last word and you're like okay we get it the last word is a destiny one gun that everybody wants back in destiny two but um i think that 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 mirroring of that story is not an accident and of course there are these references to shin malfer and to, to the you know, to the gun and to this whole idea of the followers of Dredgen Yor and the Drifter and all this lore stuff. And it's, for the first time in Destiny, it feels like it's all on purpose and it's not just kind of there. Like, they're mm-hmm. going somewhere with it. Which I think, it excites me as someone who likes that stuff and wants Destiny to go in this direction. And I think a lot of other people are into it as well. Yeah, and for the first time in Destiny, it feels like it's subtle storytelling yeah. instead of in-your-face storytelling. For example, you look at the Drifter and the Drifter is this dude who's kind of annoying yeah. He shows up and he's, is the I dude hate behind. The he's, he's the dude behind <laughs> Gambit, right? Um, he's he makes all these corny lines Ooh. and talks all about right, like, all right, all right, oh, making just, money and stuff. Yeah. And then you start doing quests and strikes, and uh, then this Cade mission, and the, you start getting all these hints that mm-hmm. he has this way bigger role than you might think um and he's actually like a deep integral part of the lore perhaps and i won't like get into all of the details or spoil it for people or anything but people are already theorizing about like who he could be and how he ties in and Mm -hmm. um i am very excited for for once to see how bungie's storytellers handle like future 
packs and like what they do with the drifter and to see if they do anything really interesting with them. Um, the other interesting thing, well, first of all, it's like way more interesting than previous incarnations of Destiny, where it's like very much in your face, like the light, the light has triumphed, face mm-hmm. the darkness, like that sort of stuff. Um, the other interesting precedent they've set now by killing Cade is this idea of like the story world changing in really interesting and meaningful, um, permanent ways, which I think they had dabbled with in the past. Obviously, in Destiny 2 Vanilla, they killed the speaker. But even after destroying the tower, it was just like, okay, we're, we're bringing the tower back, and now you have a new <laughs> tower, and it's, it's exactly the same, and all the same people are there. Um, but having like an actual impact on like actually killing one of the vendors who you would see every day if you played destiny and having it. So he's gone now is an interesting, uh, interesting, really interesting development in destiny story. Although it is, uh, unsettling when you play a strike and you hear Kate talking <laughs> to you and that's just never explained for some reason, but I guess you just have to deal with that. It's, yeah. It's stuck in time. That, um, that challenge is one that I think they'll continue to work with in you know, different ways. I think the farm in Destiny 2 is a good example of that. There was this period during the campaign of that game where it really feels like shit is different. The first time I played it, it was it's very hard to go back to that feeling now, but uh-huh. this feeling of being kind of exiled and in this scrappy rebellion, you're in this yep. farmhouse and you're kind of trying to take back the city. And then, of course, you take it back and it's this wonderful surprise. I mean, when we talked about Destiny 2 a year ago, we were very careful not to spoil anyone on the yep. fact that you go back to the tower and there's this triumph at the end and it's so uh, it was so cool because of the flow of that and because the game world changed and for a while we were in a completely different hub and doing different things and now of course they had to revert back and the farm has become this almost punchline among players because the farm is just this it's this really beautiful environment with a soccer field and stuff no one ever goes there why would anybody ever go there because you know there's no purpose for it and um that was kind of an almost an overextension and an example of why changing the game world can be a challenge because you can make a bunch of assets for something and you know introduce it and then leave mm-hmm. it behind and no one will ever yep. use it because yep. you changed yeah. the world so they're kind of finding a middle ground i like the another fact that interesting kate challenge is, of a live game yeah well the fact that kate is not there anymore is you know that's a that's easy to do and then if he ever gets replaced by another hunter vanguard that also could be cool and i don't know that might happen could be i don't know who it could be i, I was thinking it would be petra venge but i guess it's not because she's in the dreaming city so who knows it's could a be. drifter could be could be Shin Malfer. Could be yeah, Shin Malfer is going to come by. Um, another thought, another thing I want to talk about um, before we get to your interview is the Dreaming City because the Dreaming yeah. City I finally got a chance to. Well, since the last time we talked, I've been exploring it a lot more. Yeah, um, and digging into it, and it's really interesting, full of all sorts of cool secrets and uh, hidden things that you can find and things that people still haven't discovered yet. Um, but one of the thing, one of the thoughts that I had is how cool it is that in Instead of just getting your patrol missions from a little beacon, you get them from people. And that, to me, uh, reminds me of this thing that Destiny's developers had always wanted to do, which was put quests out in the world Mm -hmm. and have them be meaningful. And you saw that a little bit with adventures and how you go around to adventures and collect quests um, instead of just getting bounties and missions from uh, the tower. But um, now it's actual people, and it feels like we're getting closer and closer to that, that vision that a lot of people at Bungie always had of like these destinations where you go around and hey there's a quest over there it takes me in this direction and hey this thing will take me in this thing Um, which I think is a really cool development
moment. But just the idea that there's this new destination where you can poke around and find all this hidden weird stuff is has been pretty cool to to stumble around. Yeah, I am really, really into the Dreaming City. I've been exploring it a lot, trying not to look too much up. Um, I agree with you. One thing I noticed, I think I was playing with some people and the NPCs, they're uh, Corsairs, they're uh, Awoken Corsairs. Yeah, Corsairs. And they'll just start shooting at yeah. bad, at enemies when they appear. Uh-huh. And there's suddenly you're like, who is shooting? Oh, it's that NPC standing in that cave is like covering me. And yeah. they don't really do anything. But, but it's just a nice little touch. And there's a lot of those in the Dreaming City, I think. Mm-hmm. I have been doing some just poking around um our friend mike who we play with was showing me stuff last Shout night out to mike who's probably listening to this yeah that's right he says he listens hi mike um, he was showing me mike. he was showing me these this place that i had actually stumbled upon in the f- early days i went through this taken portal that then took me into this huge like this pink garden inside of a castle somewhere and i didn't even know where i was on the map i couldn't find myself on the map and i was looking around and i was finding all of these just huge statues and other stuff and it was this experience of just, I don't know what any of this is. Everybody has this, there's a funny recurring line when you're exploring the Dreaming City, which is, oh, this is probably going to be in the raid. This is probably going to be in the raid. I'm actually not even so sure. I think some of it, I think there's a strike that's going to unlock in the Dreaming City. I think there are going to be other challenges. If the Dreadnought from Taken King is anything to go by, there might be... Well, there might be, an, yeah, it's supposed to rearrange and things will change or just open up and, you know, become populated with enemies because some of these places are just almost empty. There could be an exotic quest where you have to go collect stuff, but we were finding stuff. Man, there were those floating little um, uh, hive crystals that you shoot during escalation protocol, but they're just immune to damage and they're really mm-hmm. hard to see some of them. They're the little cats that you can activate and give a gift to. I've done two now. We found one up in a tree. Um, we took the tincture, the queen's tincture that you can take that makes your character able to go to the ascendant realm in certain places. And I was spotting hidden platforms in the air that I could jump up to that would lead to chests that were previously totally invisible. So it lets you just see new things. There are all kinds of challenges that I don't even know what they are that I have in my uh, inventory, you know, to defeat bosses that I haven't seen and don't know what they are. And there's this feeling of just sort of Oh man, for someone who plays Destiny like you and I do, where you know you blow through all the main stuff and then just spend forever trying to see everything, it's really cool um, that they leaned into that and put something this elaborate in the game. I'm, I'm very yeah, into it. Yeah, it's just it's a serious problem that they're releasing the raid that I the day that I leave for my honeymoon. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a real problem. I was like, oh no, I know where this is going. <laughs> what did you think I was? Uh, I don't know. I was... Just it's a serious problem that they took them this long to get it right, and they lost so yeah. many users from the yeah. first year. You know, something real. <laughs> actual actual thought is that it's just a shame that Bungie's tools have been holding them back for so long because it feels like if like another. Uh, iteration or like another version of Destiny in another in an alternate timeline where they had the tools and engine of I don't know an insomniac or a naughty dog um, they Destiny might be twice the size and full of stuff like this and yeah. just I do I feel like I should give them credit I wrote a post yesterday about how sort of unusually buggy uh, this launch has been, which it has been, yeah. it's, it's had a f- more technical problems. But at the same time, I actually have been very impressed by how responsive they've been to those bugs. The big weekly reset bug they hit on mm-hmm. Saturday, they just tweeted before we recorded this that they found a fix for it, and everyone is going to get the engrams that they missed out on, which a lot of people were, you yeah, know, understandably, nice. I guess, upset about. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just been a lot of that. There, I think there's a running theme where people say, oh, Bungie always fixes things immediately. You know, if it affects the Eververse or if it makes the game too fun, they patch it immediately. Yeah. But they never patch the things, you know, that are ongoing problems like the heavy ammo boot bug or whatever in um, 
in in the first game during kind yep. of the crotas and forever period. that fix yeah right that was in there forever and then they fixed it so i've actually been very impressed with how they're running these really transparent logs of all the problems there are problems but they're just acknowledging them and saying yep we know that we're working on them we have the top priority here and they're really rolling out fixes for stuff pretty quickly and you know credit credit where credit is due um, all right. Why don't you give us a little intro to the interview that you have conducted? For nice. Us. So this is an, the person I was very excited to speak with. Her name is Lindsay Ellis, and I do a whole introduction of her when we actually talked um, last weekend in Portland. There was a festival called XOXO, which is sort of a hard to define in a kind of similar way to uh, South by Southwest, but maybe a little easier than that. But it's kind of a conference for creative people on the internet. Um, a lot of really smart people who do YouTube videos and make music and make video games and do other stuff come and there's some really cool talks uh, it's a nice festival I've gone a couple times this year I saw that she was going to be there and I really like her YouTube channel I've gotten into it over the last few months and I thought well okay this cool person I like I'm going to talk to so we did an interview um, heads up before we record that the sound quality is like pretty good it's fine I think but we were recording in a sort of hallway of a hotel because we just had to find <laughs> somewhere to record so the sound quality isn't as excellent as you may expect from split screen but you should be able to understand everything everybody said uh, and it was a fun chat so we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll listen to it mm-hmm. welding instructor alex declare knows firsthand how vr training platforms like forge fx can help meet the demand for skilled workers anywhere you go look there's going to be a shortage of welders vr training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career the beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, I'm Melissa Kirsch, Editor-in-Chief of Lifehacker. And I'm Alice Bradley, Lifehacker's Deputy Editor. And we're the hosts of Lifehacker's podcast, The Upgrade. On The Upgrade, we help you improve your life one week at a time. We talk to guests like former hacker Hector Monsegur about online security. You need to be aware of how you can be attacked. You need to be aware of what's your weakness. And Alan Alda on how to communicate more effectively. And in order to achieve that, we start with teaching exercises derived from improvisation. And sex therapist Steven Snyder about how to have great sex in a long-term relationship. What really works under those circumstances is if you enjoy the other person selfishly. Hey, your life, it's terrible. We can help. <laughs> Find The Upgrade wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, 
Lindsay Ellis is a critic and filmmaker whose work you've probably seen via her YouTube channel, where she and a small team regularly put out video essays to more than 400,000 subscribers. Their output ranges from entertaining analyses of Disney's recent live-action movies to a well-researched three-parter on the making of the Hobbit trilogy, to a multi-part thematic deep read of Michael Bay's Transformers oeuvre, to a merciless deconstruction of Netflix's awful Will Smith vehicle, Bright, which was actually the first of Lindsay's videos that I watched. Anyway, if this is your trash, I'm not trying to judge. I have seen Showgirls dozens of times, and I just released a video defending Twilight. That said, even though this movie kind of came and went and everyone else has already, you know, forgotten about it, I cannot stop thinking about Bright. So, uh, we're gonna make a thing out of it. That's right, we're making a thing. Fairy lives don't matter today. Her newest project is a six-episode video series called It's Lit, which she produced for PBS. She's one of my favorite YouTube people. And uh, when I saw she was going to be in town in Portland for the XOXO Fest, I felt like I had to ask her if she would be down to talk with me for the show. Yeah. Lindsay, welcome to Kotaku Split Screen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, saying nice things. <laughs> I'm going to try to internalize that. Yes. Just, it, it, <laughs> accept it, compliments. It's all true. <laughs> you got to accept the compliment. It's important. I'm sure it's, a, yeah, it's an important thing we're all working on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I should set the stage for our listeners because you may hear elevators in the background. <laughs> um, Lindsay and I met up at a hotel downtown to, <laughs> to talk to We're record like this that. segment. Um, <laughs> not what it like. No, just in the lobby, and we've been kind of going around to various meeting rooms looking for somewhere quiet that we can record. <laughs> and we found a pretty good spot, but if you hear some random person yep. yelling at some other person, um, <laughs> well, that's that's what you're hearing. So I guess hotel. I guess let's. Uh, it seems chill. Let's start by. Um, how about you just tell our listeners your story? How did you get into making videos for YouTube? Oh God. Oh, it's a, it's kind of a sad story. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh boy! I'm like, oh wow! Didn't you know? Oh yeah, there was like a big drama earlier this year where uh, I originally um, was hired to be the female counterpart of another very popular YouTuber oh, who really? I who I will not uh, name here. Okay, but. Um, we kind of parted on bad terms in 2014 mm -hmm. and earlier this year a bunch of other former contributors to that website just kind of out released a google doc outlining grievances and most of them were pretty banal you know like manage bad communication mm -hmm. bad basic managerial incompetence <laughs> but some of it some of it got really dark mm -hmm. and then they got this this company got really defensive it was a back and forth it was just really like everyone lost nobody won it was just everyone came out looking bad sounds like media <laughs> drama to me <laughs> but that's how i got my start okay <laughs> uh, awesome auspicious beginning yeah it's yeah it's funny because i'm like uh, i've spent like the last five years trying to you know crawl out from under that inauspicious beginning um <clears throat> uh, but yeah, basically, uh, I kind of had to start from scratch whenever, um, uh, blip.tv went under, which was the original platform I used to create for bef oh, okay. before YouTube was a total monopoly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, basically kind of had to start from scratch back in 2016. Uh, so were you, and you're, you were always kind of doing video essays and your goal was to like make this kind of stuff, the kind of thing that you make? No, like, it used to be just more straightforward, like angry video game nerd style reviews. Oh, okay. Um, which was, I guess, like, I'm, I'm really glad the format of the video essay has gained popularity because, mm -hmm. like, the whole, like, 
review response thing was really popular for a long time mm-hmm. and I, I was never a format I was terribly comfortable with uh, not that I think it's bad it just didn't really fit me per se so for a review you mean like focus on a single movie yeah, like, movie comes out you do a review yeah it. like mystery science theater style like right. scene plays you riff on it right, um, right, right you know and that was basically like the entirety of the internet between 2009 and 2013 <laughs> it was like yeah. five years where that was like all of movie YouTube like there was and it's it's funny how different now it is it's like a a lot more you know like you have like nerd writer now and mm-hmm. you know tony Zhu came and got, came and went uh, mm-hmm. every frame of painting and yeah. it's a lot more kind of like film school and we're going to talk about tarantino's use of mise-en-scene it does it, yeah um tony Zhu. that every frame of painting those videos kind of got me into watching video essays about mm-hmm. movies on YouTube yeah, yeah. just because they're great and I, every time I watch them I was like I feel like I'm benefiting from somebody else's degree yeah. you studied <laughs> you went to film school or you studied yeah, film yeah I had my my undergrad I studied uh, um, I was cinema studies at NYU it's like one of those fields of study that every school has a different term for it mm-hmm. like uh, it's film studies some, at NYU it's cinema studies at USC it's critical studies um, so I went to NYU for cinema studies and then uh the economy crashed and (laughs) right after I graduated and so genius that I was I was like well time to go to grad school so I went to USC for film and TV production ah okay um yeah and I you know I had like such I actually went to school with Ryan Coogler uh oh nice his editor Claudia was the editor for my master's thesis really yeah it's like all these people that like I know I was just like I I, I like to drop that one because it's funny but like because I I, I mean that means you you basically made Black Panther yeah I basically yeah you're welcome you're you're welcome (laughs) thanks for that the world world. thanks you yeah no I I haven't talked to him since like grad school but like that's still pretty cool yeah I did work on his uh advanced project nice all right which is you know you can see that on IMDb I don't know if I got credited for it though. Nice. I was just like a driver. <laughs> did you, um, when you were in school, were you? Did you want to make movies, or did you think that you'd be doing criticism? What, what was your know. plan there? Um, yeah, nobody knows what they yeah. do in school. I don't even know why I asked that. So it's like because like, who I knows think, when well, they're going USC to is one of those schools where he is designed to churn out stars. You know, mm. like it's not like a vocational school. Like that's why people like, you know, uh, Ryan Coogler and. Um, uh, who else? Brian Singer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> like, Great. Uh, like, I'm like, who... who Beloved who, stars yeah, who are completely who non-problematic. George Lucas. Like, they do mm. tend to... Like, USC definitely has a mind to, to like, turning out Hollywood big names. Hmm. Um, and that's why people tend to go there, is they want to be, like, a big star. But not across the board, because obviously, like, they have special... You know, there's no, like, you know, star cinematographers who are household names. Mm-hmm. You know, so... A lot of people do go to like specialize in editing and going to like a star school like that is, you know, because there's like above the line where you'll be like, yeah. um, you know, an editor on Game of Thrones and, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a good way to kind of get that leg up. That tends to be why people go there. It's not the only way to be like a star editor or whatever it is you want to do. That said, I don't know. I really like even back then I kind of like just was really uncomfortable with this idea of committing to a field of study hmm. or, or like, uh, I want to be a director or, or whatever it is. Cause like, even at the time, um, it's like, I, you know, cause you meet someone like Ryan and you're like, that person is going to be a star. Hmm. And it's not because he's like, just cause he's charismatic. It's because he was really good at the super underappreciated, <laughs> Um, skill of managing people of managing mm-hmm. other people's egos which if, as a director is like something that you have to do and it's something I was never good at <laughs> and that's kind of why even when I was in grad school I felt like 
I was churning out some of the, like, I do feel like uh, the stuff I was in charge of was kind of top of the class, but I didn't think I was going to be a director because I, <laughs> I didn't have that skill. So hmm. I don't know. Interesting. So um, I want to talk to you about some, a few things about movies and mm-hmm. some other stuff. Um, I think, you know, we're usually a video game podcast, mm-hmm. but there's so much overlap, I think, in just mm-hmm. the way that we consider these things and the way that culture is kind of blending into itself or something that, uh, that there's just, there are a lot of interesting parallels. And I do encourage listeners to check out your channel because I think they would get a lot out of it. Yeah, thank you. First of all, I want to talk about Disney. Mm-hmm. So Disney like rules the world of pop culture now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I have so many thoughts about Disney and what Disney means to various people. I know you have probably 10 times more thoughts on Disney. So I'll just put it to you this way. What is the deal with Disney? Well, um, antitrust laws are a lot weaker than they used to be. Yeah, they have like a monopoly <laughs> on our entertainment, it, I yeah, guess. It, like, it's, it's coming to a point where it kind of reminds me of the cable company where it's also yeah. like with this Fox acquisition. Uh, they like something like 42% of movies distributed in the United States are mm-hmm. going to be under the Disney umbrella. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's like when you have a company like that, it's it's really hard to have like a concrete feeling on something so big and so diverse. Yeah. Do you draw a distinction between like a Disney movie, you know, like Hunchback of Notre Dame or uh-huh. something and a Disney movie, you know, Disney as an entertainment yeah, conglomerate? Yeah, kind of. Like, you know, like a Disney movie, which is made under the studio, is also kind of distinct from a Marvel movie, which is made mm-hmm. by a different studio, but is distributed by the Disney company. Right. And is owned by the Disney company. Right. But, you know, it's, you still kind of have to, like, it still has to make these calls um, that, like, are... are yeah, everything has to be acceptable under the Disney brand. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then that's, you know, again, we kind of come to the whole James Gunn situation where... Yeah, which I, I, do you <laughs> think... <laughs> I, I want to ask, well, I know, I already know yeah. how you think, but you, how do you feel about the James Gunn? Should, I guess we should, should we explain what it is, listeners? Uh, yeah. We talked about it a little bit on the show a few episodes ago. But um, that, that basically Disney... Mm-hmm. Uh, what a bunch of like an alt-right mm-hmm. internet yeah. campaign uncovered shitty old tweets of James Gunn's that were kind of already known. Yeah, and uh, this is actually helpful for me to recap it. Yeah, and, and it was like got it litigated right. in yeah. the court of public opinion. Like it already had been when right? he was hired for Guardians of the right. Galaxy, and of course then it was just like you know tended to be leftists being like, look at this jerk. You right, know? right. Um, and for whatever reason, he never got around to deleting um, his old tweets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like. Yeah, and it's like it's it's really harmful because like Disney, it was such a spineless move. And yeah, why aren't they backing down? Because because corporations, it's like whenever this is like whenever someone makes that call and it turns out to be a mistake, someone's mm-hmm. going to lose their job. Mm-hmm. And what it kind of looks like is if Alan Horn, who appears to have been the guy that made that call, he's the president of the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, he if if he were to back down right he would lose his job and it's kind of a situation where it's either james gunn or alan horn man um that seems like a bad way to set things up that it has to be so corporations are like that Mm. and and it's just like it's it it's it was a tactic that we're still seeing the consequences of because like this this happened to me actually like a couple weeks ago Mm um and it it is like in my case it was so dumb like it because it was like such an obvious joke. Nothing like what Gunn did, which was like, <laughs> you yeah. know, like maybe, well, no, yeah, his jokes maybe he were should definitely not have not, said that. Yeah, not I made jokes. a joke about like how, like 
some white supremacist tweeted at me like a mm-hmm. couple years ago and I made a joke at them like, yeah, white genocide is the bee's knees. Love that white genocide. Right, right. Um, this is sort of along the lines of what happened to Sarah Jiang, I feel like. Yeah, where yeah, It was exactly. very similar, using their kind of so, sarcastically embracing what they're saying. Yeah, and so there was a, a white supremacist uh, Twitter uh, account that got very popular very quickly and they, mm-hmm. their whole MO was targeting people affiliated with uh, mainstream news outlets because we hate that mainstream media oh, yeah. and they targeted me specifically because of my affiliation with PBS mm. and they really like they don't like PBS because PBS is partially publicly funded mm-hmm. and um, it, was, it was and you know it, it, it was fortunately in my case PBS saw it for what it was uh, but you know, it was it was a big deal. I think even it really shook them when it's just like this is what happens. This is the world now. Mm-hmm. And um, these huge companies. I mean, mm-hmm. PBS is also a big company. Yeah. You never really know how they're gonna go with yeah, it. And it was that like is nerve wracking. I think that was the first time the CEO of PBS f- learned who I was, which is really not a great it's way. The worst. Thing. Yeah, that is that is the worst thing. Oh boy. That, um, <laughs> Yeah, I w- and I wonder. I mean, Disney in particular is such a conservative company mm-hmm. that, in or in a lot of ways, anyways, I guess I, is that a fair characterization? I guess no. I think of them as a consider- conservative company. I mean, Maybe I think they're, they're not. like American liberal. Like I would say they're liberal. Like, right. They're, I guess I mean right. I don't mean politically. Yeah, yeah, conservative. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, think more yes, like, they're lowercase c conservative. Right. Because any co- big corporation think, is yeah. lowercase c conservative. Right? Yeah, it's very. They're, they're, I would say they're very neoliberal in that mm-hmm. way. But it's also like they're they're very safe. It's all about safety. Yes. Uh, but the 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 decision they made with James Gunn was just like it wasn't just about Disney. And it, no. it like and I feel like these companies just they really need to be abreast of these strategies yeah, and, and just the way aware. their good faith are being taken advantage of. And the, there's just the way that this the whole culture war has spilled out into mm-hmm. you know into pop culture and like kind of started there. I mean, I don't know. I was you were there for Gamergate oh, like God. that, so it kind of started there, and it's always been there. And, it's amazing the, how much a target I was even back then when I didn't say. I very specifically never said, like tried not to say anything right. in a public. But I was like, and I yet. had I had male colleagues who did, and mm-hmm. they came after me. Because obviously I'm the puppet master making these guys yeah. say these words against no. Gamergate. It's super true. I mean, as someone who was like an editor at Kotaku, I got mm-hmm. some shit, but like nothing like the women I worked with yeah, or yeah. Any, you know anything like that. It was it was always very clear just from those ratios, kind of yeah. what was really going on. And you would just I don't know. It would be nice to see companies like Disney take a kind of firmer hand and just yeah. seem more aware of what's going on with this stuff. There was a quote that you quoted in, I think it was your um, Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. live action critique. Uh, is it Michael Eisner? And I'm going to like mangle the quote. The, the quote is basically something along the lines of, you can't make art. Do you oh, remember yeah, it? Yeah. Do it's you remember it better than I like, What's the quote? Well, basically, it's like our job is not to make art, it's to make money. And basically, Eisner's treatise is this idea that like rapid fire you know t-shirt cannon movies like just make a lot of movies mm-hmm. some of them will stick and just by pure ratio some of them will be good you know and this is just his business ethos but he's like it's not our job to make art and I, it, it has kind of become slightly misattributed because people like say that eisner's like oh like art you know he's against art he just wants to make money he's like well mm-hmm. he's a ceo it is his job yeah it's kind of like hooray art through mm-hmm. capitalism is kind yeah, of like, exactly. he's saying I want to make art but he's saying the way to do it yeah basically is he's saying make a lot of money. movies and just by sheer ratio some mm-hmm. of them will be art mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not our job to make art <laughs> it's kind of I feel like it's like the Netflix approach or that whole yeah, HBO yeah. thing where this, there was this just flood the market right some of them will be good <laughs> right just make a jillion things and you know you'll wind up with one or two Stranger Things mm-hmm. and that's all you really need exactly and then yeah. everyone will watch them um, I so 
zooming out a little bit, I am fascinated. I think everybody is very interested in the way that art and media has kind of expanded Mm -hmm. and just gotten bigger over the last 15 years. So we have all these interconnected universes and movies Mm -hmm. and everything now is an interconnected universe to the point where it's like almost, Mm -hmm. you almost think they're kidding when they tell you, oh yeah, we're making like the mummy movies are going to be part of an interconnected universe or or even watching Mission Impossible recently. So sad, the dark universe. (laughs) It just just died, right? It's the dark day. That's not happening anymore. So I feel like there are all these things and then in video games, there's the games as a service thing where like every game, it's no longer just like a standalone thing. Mm -hmm. It's like going to be this ongoing saga that lasts for years and years and years and you know the super fans will connect a jillion dots and like you know know all the little details why do you think this is happening i think it's because companies have gotten good at sort of intersecting a perception of authenticity uh with brand loyalty interesting um i think because i it, on some level i think people kind of this is why people like tv shows they like things being connected i think because mm-hmm. i think on some level people kind of they want to have that sort of like experience of feeling like things are connected but it's really hard to do that well and mm-hmm. especially at big budgets because like these it's really hard to kind of interconnect these visions because you know filmmakers tend to have really different visions yeah so um, i think that's why it's like you, you need a firm hand uh that's why that's i think that's the reason marvel has been like the only really successful cinematic universe mm-hmm. is because kevin feige who's uh, the head of marvel studios he's he's very good at like picking leads creative leads who um, will work well with others, but also who have uh, like an interesting vision that people will kind of come back for. Because each movie is distinct enough mm-hmm. that it doesn't feel like the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really hard to find people that um, are good at hurting all of those cats, you know, and making it feel cohesive. Yeah, you're kind of replicating something. They're they're trying to replicate something that, or they're trying to do something that has never really yeah, been done before, yeah. and that has to just be challenging. Thinking, exactly. well, I, I think this will play out this way, but I just don't really yeah, know. And that's a problem with like the DC universe is like they don't really have a strong creative vision for that. Mm-hmm. They just kind of rolled with Zack Snyder, and everything kind of looks like Zack Snyder, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fine. It's just not very good. <laughs> well, right. Like that look. Well, and that look I, becomes dreary yeah, over time. And people, I, because I, obviously, cringe, people really want the DC universe to be successful, mm-hmm. but they want this version of it to be successful, and people just don't really respond to it in the way they do Marvel. Right, right. Yeah, I sort of, I, I don't know. I There's a, there's an aspect to it where fans, especially modern fans, are so empowered to connect the yeah. dots between mm-hmm. things. There's a thing. So do you know about the Zelda timeline? Mm-hmm. Like in this world of Zelda. Oh yeah, I think so. There's like this massive effort to create a, a master timeline mm-hmm. for all of the Zelda games, which doesn't exist. Like that's not a thing. I don't think Nintendo, yeah. I don't think anyway, it's like really intended to do this. But it's kind of amazing while wow, people are like, oh yeah, there's this tiny little detail in this thing. I feel like I see that, you know, that's it goes back to comic the days of comic books, you know, mm-hmm. before the internet. And now people kind of have the ability to do this you know, everyone's kind of empowered to do that. Like Marvel can put a little teaser with some character you've never heard of, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, yeah. after the credits yeah, and then and everybody like, can know who it is. <laughs> and it's not just the, like the guy next to you maybe is like, oh, really excited. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know who that is, but I'm going to go Google it afterwards. And I then will know and speak very authoritatively about how like, oh yeah, that was, uh, I don't know, whatever, the guy at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy. Or <laughs> like, do you, is there something to that? Like that because people are now so much more able to appreciate mm-hmm. it, the people making this stuff has started to cater to that and yeah. sort of raise the bar for the accessibility on it's, that. It's somewhat. weird because like at the end of the day, they're not making movies for those people. Those people aren't a powerful uh, ma- market. Mm. Uh, 
But I do think that crowd does kind of have a disproportionate amount of power because they are so vocal. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's true across yeah. like across pause. all of the things. Okay, moving on. New topic. Mm-hmm. Kylo Ren and the First <laughs> Order. <laughs> um, you did a really cool video essay about the ideology of the First Order, mm-hmm. trying to pin down what the First Order stands for or what mm-hmm. they actually believe other than just sort of like being dicks. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, can you can you maybe paraphrase your findings on the, yeah. the ideology of the first order? Well, we were, uh, af- it was after I saw the last Jedi and we were kind of talking about like, what do they want? Uh, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like what are they actually trying to accomplish yeah. other than like being jerks? Yeah. Cause like, and and then we sort of it sort of led to these discussions about because like, we'd been thinking a lot of Umberto Eco and uh, his uh, seminal essay or fascism about the mm-hmm. rise of fascism in Italy in the mm-hmm. mid-1940s because I think you know it's it's I I think on a some level like the last Jedi really gets that fascism is just a really hollow ideology mm-hmm. for ideology's sake mm-hmm. uh, because you look at like well why is Kylo Ren mad what does he want and it's mm-hmm. just like he he doesn't really want anything he just has this like shapeless anger that is then kind of taken advantage of mm-hmm. this is actually like stated outright in uh, The Force Awakens where you know yeah do you think and I that mean- tends to be how people get recruited to fascism so it's like there's two sides to it right it's like it's partly that disney wants to make a movie where they can sell yeah, action exactly. figures. you point this out in your video they want to sell action figures of stormtroopers so you and can't stuff. say what they do right just that they're bad they're bad and like you can't get too specifically into like yes they are actual space nazis yeah. you know, committing genocide even though we do see that happening mm-hmm. but they're still you know it kind of so they're kind of having it both ways but then in doing so they kind of wind up with as you pointed yeah. out this sort of interesting meta statement like do you read the new trilogy and the last jedi as sort I of a meta I don't think it's critique. a meta critique, but I do think I do think it was deliberate. Like mm-hmm. I do think uh I do think Ryan Johnson meant to um make a statement about the nature of fascism. Mm-hmm. I'll albeit a soft one, like not like a big grand statement, but just like kind of a statement on the nature of fascism, which is that it just doesn't mean anything it doesn't like because obviously there'll be like calls to action you'll be like oh the immigrants are bad but right. like it, it's just kind of an excuse it's just like it, you know and and that is sort of its nature that it mm-hmm. doesn't actually mean anything which echo like, echo pointed out like Mussolini would just and you kind of see that now with Trump where it's just like Trump will just say whatever right. on any given day and then say something right. completely different the next day and everyone will be like yeah and right because like <laughs> the emotion and the action or the response yeah. is just sort of the point yeah. there's and no substance to it exactly and that that sort of has always been like the nature of fascism mm. but yeah. there's also like this heroic narrative that they that they really are drawn Call to themselves really. yeah we're just like you it's action for action's sake everything is a life or death struggle mm-hmm. um and you know we see that again and again you see like it in the more fashy sections of fandom where ever it's not just I, I hate a thing it's a life or death struggle the battle for civilization whether you like you know <laughs> justice league right, or not right it's, yeah it is always it always when you want to just be like it's a video yeah. like it's a movie it's why a does video everything have to be heroic life like, or death struggle right like i talk about these things for a living and yet still yeah. perspective everybody yeah there's something about the fact that the new order is a obsessed with they're like fans the of or, they're, well they're and they're fans of like the empire and they're um <laughs> and how they're sort i don't know like the way that they're like oh yeah like we want to mm-hmm. be just like these guys like how kylo yeah. ren is the ultimate darth vader fan yeah. and he wants to dress up as him and mm-hmm. do what he does and it kind of feels like if there's an echo of the real world yeah, there, exactly. and i wonder how on purpose that was i think i more more for johnson than abrams i think abrams yeah. is you know he just kind of does whatever mm-hmm. is good for the story i think johnson is a little more uh, intent behind it and i think that's yeah. why 
you know, real life, real world fascists tend to be weirdly threatened by that movie. Yeah, they're really, I can't, man, I see, so since I've been watching your videos mm-hmm. and other YouTube movie, mm-hmm. you know, critiques and stuff, there's the recommended thing on YouTube, which yeah. we can talk about that maybe in a little bit. Woof. But um, there's so <laughs> much about The Last Jedi and it's yeah. always, it, it does strike me as this sort of guiding star for a certain type of, yeah. of, of I think video critique. Like, this movie, you, I hate it. It yeah. sucks, it sucks. Like, if, you, if you do have fashy leanings, I think it's, it's, mm-hmm. It is kind of threatening. You're aware that the movie is mocking you yeah, and exactly. making you out to be hollow. Exactly. There's al- and there's also the fact that in that movie, I think I realized this the second time I watched it, I think all the women in that movie are right. Yeah. Like <laughs> from start that. to oh, the end. <laughs> it's like every every time a woman is like, no, you should do this. Like mm-hmm. she's right in yeah. the end. And that's kind of a funny thing about that movie that I didn't yeah. even realize the first time I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that that so I'm think I think back to a you know Bob Chipman movie Bob mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he um I like his movies a lot he did a really cool really long thing called uh, really that good about the mm-hmm. Avengers and he talked about he did a a metatextual analysis of that movie where he basically was saying the reason that one of the reasons that that movie did well is because it kind of dovetails the in movie goal of you know the the Avengers are assembling and like mm-hmm. is this going to work can we really get all of these different heroes together and save the world with the meta tech, you know, the the meta version of is this movie going to work? Are we mm-hmm. going to be able to take all these characters? We've never done this before. Is this going to work? And that got the audience not just rooting for the heroes, but rooting for the movie. Yeah, which yeah. I thought was like an interesting take. And kind of, there's a lot of stuff in game critiques too, where we'll talk about you know the development of the game and whether the game itself echoes that development. Mm-hmm. You know a lot about the movie industry and clearly like take that into account in your critiques. Do mm-hmm. you? How do you approach that kind of metatextual analysis? Do you think it's easy to go too far into it and Definitely. get obsessed with it? You know, how do you find that balance? Um, I, th- I think it just you, you go like it varies from project to project because mm-hmm. I think um, it's uh, like the nature of production, like the markets and who makes the decisions is kind of, especially in academia, under discussed. People in academia and also on YouTube to a certain extent to mm-hmm. tend to be really more focused on the text. Uh, and not you know the paratext why the movie success to me is what's interesting about media it's oh, not it, yeah. it's not about like you know it's it's about what gets made wh- why it's made why people responded to it mm-hmm. uh but i think it also kind of varies from project to project because like obviously like the hobbit right uh we when we did that w- it was there was this very deliberate like the first video was almost a exclusively about the text the second video was about the production and then the third video was about um the labor dispute mm-hmm. um, and like those those were but I also kind of snuck in some stuff about the text into part two right well those, <laughs> I think those are some really effective parts or I'm, I think this is in part two but they, like you're kind of pointing out look how uninspired these performances yeah. become over the course of the movie or like the you know beast for she feminism of Tauriel right I put right. in part two because that to me was more relevant to uh, the market and Warner Brothers' idea of who was going to buy right, it. Right, uh, And you can see the direct result of their decision-making process yeah. in the movie and then critique that as well. Yeah. Which, yeah, that struck me actually as a really good example of, like, striking the right balance there, yeah. I guess. And, and it's it's hard because, uh, you know, you'll word vomit all these ideas and pairing it back and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, a lot of the challenges, especially when you're working with a team, uh, and that was kind of the challenge with the, the roadshow video we did, which was about musicals in the 1960s, mm-hmm. was 
kind of taking a step back and figuring out, well, what is the focus of this video? Because mm-hmm. uh, like, originally it was much more about road shows, um, but you know, we kind of stepped back and just made it more about the production. Just be like, instead. you didn't know about this thing. Yeah, this exactly. is, what are road shows for listeners? You road shows were uh, actually a really a long-running marketing strategy mm-hmm. where you'd have these big, epic movies, movies that, you know, like Gone with the Wind and um, musicals, when that was a thing, uh, when, when that, that was, was like the money maker yeah, for Hollywood. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Those were like, you know, the point I was trying to make was like, this was sort of the infinity war of like the 30s, 40s, 50s, right, and 60s. Right. Uh, like, this was the big game. And they used roadshows to sort of build prestige and sort of make it feel more Broadway, mm-hmm. like theatrical. You dress up, you pay premium tickets to see it um so it's kind of like rpx 4d <laughs> <laughs> right right it's the, the step before yeah. vibrating chairs and yeah, the wind we, blowing exactly. in your face we, we we had a uh, like a gag i i didn't actually get around to filming where it's like you know i i'm like in one of those chairs and someone's like spraying a spray <laughs> have you gone to one of those theaters yeah, are they cool um this is what this is the for I, listeners this is the theater where like the yeah, chair, yeah, the chair shakes and yeah. you get like a full immersion I saw experience thor ragnarok in 4d rpx yeah. uh-huh. um, how was it I actually oh, that was a good movie to see in 40 RPX because yeah, there's a lot of flying around and uh-huh. like, so there's Wee! wind is yeah. that what are the different sense like what um, are the senses I, 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 the, yeah there, there's there's wind there's also smell it's weird because it doesn't smell like anything specific it's just huh. like kind of smells like plastic like acrid yeah. or like no it's all all of the smells just, are the same oh really yep. <laughs> so it really is smell of vision yeah though. it's just They're like a generic chemical wow. smell that They're really they blow desperate. like three or four times they are desperate to get people to go yeah. to the movie no it's like my my fun my favorite 4D story was not a one I actually saw. It was Jenny Nicholson who saw um, Harry Potter seven, uh, no, Harry Potter eight in mm-hmm. uh, 4D, and um, like she said, it was like the funniest thing. Where like the moment where Snape leans over Lily's dead body, the chair like gently leans forward, <laughs> oh like God. you are <laughs> grieving Snape. <laughs> that just doesn't seem. I don't know. I've watched the movies in VR, and it's not. I don't know. I don't know if we need to increase immersion yeah. to yeah. this level. It just seems it. like I can just sit there and watch the thing on the screen. It'll be fine. Um, I guess they need to get butts in the seats, though. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a broad question. But I'm sort of interested in your answer. Uh, what is the role of criticism, in your opinion? Like, what do you see as the goal of your work? I don't know. I see Because on the one hand, I feel like it, the goal is to make people consume in media more intelligently and mm-hmm. less... Um, black and white you know like thing good and thing bad mm-hmm. and i would say that but sometimes obviously it is really cathartic to be like thing bad right you know bright like, bad I wasn't re- that the name of your bright video was bright bad Bright bad, <laughs> yeah. bad. and it, like that was like you know dragon energy fueled by hate right, we pumped right. that out in it's two a great weeks. video you know? yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it, like, it was, yeah it was like we had to get it out quickly because mm-hmm. no one's going to care about bright in two weeks no, very true. um but i think it's also just like you know trying to encourage people to think more um comp- Com- like think of more of the complete picture mm-hmm. rather than and and also to kind of examine emotional reactions i think people hmm. um you know I, I people tend to like you see this a lot with criticism of the left the last jedi it's a, objectively bad they keep you keep seeing this word mm-hmm. like it's objectively it's, no it's not objectively anything mm-hmm. your reaction even if you can back it up with like peer-reviewed journals is subjective and right. i think i i would like to see people just kind of owning that you know, especially like I hate Bright and here's why. Um, it's still an emotional reaction, and right. you just own that and 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 be more comfortable with it. Not everything needs to be objective. I think right. you know that media exists to evoke emotions. 
there's a power in that, right? I think mm-hmm. at least as a critic myself, like when I'm writing and I write about my own feelings and, mm-hmm. and how something made me feel, I actually feel like I'm on very solid ground whenever I'm doing mm-hmm. that. And it, it's it's interesting to me that so many people try to approach things yeah. in such a you know sort of objective well, way. It's just terror of being wrong, right? You know? and, and which is because you can't be wrong about how you yeah. feel. Yeah, and not just possible. like well, that's why we need to make everything objective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's just like it, it's okay to to have different opinions and I right. think there is definitely like this every like everything's culture war now and it's just so fucking exhausting yeah know? it really is it um and it I feel like well I want to talk about YouTube a little bit I guess mm-hmm. this is a good t- good way to double tail into that because I feel like I see a lot of that on YouTube mm-hmm. and you sort of have a an arch approach to YouTube on your channel. You kind of will like post joke clickbait thumbnails Mm -hmm. and you're clearly very aware of the way YouTube works, even though I think you're also doing some things differently than a lot of, you know, other YouTubers. How do you, I guess, what's the difference between a good YouTube video (laughs) essay and a bad YouTube video essay? And how do you try to set yourself apart? Oh boy, I gotta be be careful. You don't need to name names. I'm not trying to stir up more drama. I know YouTubers love drama, but no need for that. Well, my, my, uh, my friend Jenny Nicholson, she's also, she's not, I wouldn't say she's a video essayist, but mm-hmm. she does YouTube videos and hers tend to be more like comedy. Um, uh, she and I definitely like to bag on bad video essays. Yes, yes. Oh, I, yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's just like a lot of them will be like, um, you know, they'll use words like objectively. They mm-hmm. tend to be young. They mm-hmm. tend to be male. They mm-hmm. tend to be white. And they tend to be kind of aping, uh, not the every frame of painting style, more the Plinkett style, mm-hmm. uh, without kind of the knowledge base mm-hmm. that uh, Red Letter Media has. Yeah, I remember that Plinkett video. I actually learned a lot from that video. Yeah. Just, I mean, it was very, I feel like that video was like mm-hmm. this founding event for a lot yeah, of YouTube yeah. essays and probably some bad habits too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always hated the serial killer stuff and whatever, but there were definitely things. I just remember he explained shot reverse shot and yeah. I didn't know what that was. Yeah, and I yeah, was yeah. like, Oh, that I didn't know mm-hmm. that. And now I'm noticing that a lot. And so that can be helpful. But yeah, so yeah. that you're saying that. Yeah. That I, I think it's of. like, they'll be aping a style without mm-hmm. the knowledge base behind it. That to me is a bad video essay. And they do mm-hmm. tend to like, and, and then they'll like, they'll be like weird, bad hot takes mm-hmm. uh, or it'll be like pointing out a trope and then like kind of completely ignoring all other instances of that trope that kind of run counter to whatever point they're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just kind of like weird and cluttered. And like a lot of it is just young men finding because they're, they're never women. <laughs> right, right. Women don't do like at least not video essay YouTube. I, can, I know like two, uh, I guess three if you count ContraPoints, but she's not really a um, film video essays Mm -hmm. i can think there i can think of two other women that i know that are (laughs) on the film side of the video essay but the vast 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 majority are are young yeah it does seem that way (laughs) the um not that there's anything wrong with that so i'm you know i married a white man it's like they're my favorite i love it i love white men Um, love them no white genocide for me (laughs) making this very clear pbs pbs if you're listening yes the ceo Uh, white genocide is is not no genocide no genocide today lindsay ellis (laughs) anti-genocide you could quote me on that not fan of genocide even white ones um you also kind of uh, sort of related to this you walk a line between nitpicking and Mm -hmm. 
not like nitpicking in a helpful way or in a way that's constructive yeah. to a broader argument yeah, some, versus like, just yeah. nitpicking. I don't know. What are your, what well, are there's some definitely thoughts on some that? older videos where I, I wish I had cut out the nitpicky parts. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like, I think with Hercules, like there, I have some nitpicky stuff in there that I'm just like, it doesn't have anything to do with the broader thesis. Mm-hmm. So I feel like lately I'm like, if I do have like nitpicks, if, if I'm going to include that, it needs to run, you know, and it needs right. to contribute to the thesis. Otherwise, you need to like cut here's it. why that matters because yeah. they're trying to paint this broader yeah, exactly. thing. And if they leave a hole here and it fails, then yeah. that yeah. Because I look at like the the one I did for Rent and the one I did for Hercules. I have these sections in there that's just nitpicking for nitpicking sakes. And if mm-hmm. I if I had it to do over again, I would cut that because it doesn't actually have anything to do with the the, the broader theses of mm-hmm. the the two respective videos. That's got to be a challenge that your older work is your face talking to you about mm-hmm. stuff. Like I when I read old things that I've written and mm-hmm. you know. I'm like, Ugh, like I, yeah, I, I'm, I would have said that differently or whatever. Yeah. And um, it's got to be a whole new level to oh actually see a past yeah. version of yourself. And I've, telling like, you. especially because I've been on, been online for so long, mm-hmm. and you're like all my receipts are out there. It's, yep. you know, it's just kind of something like, well, you know, keep on trucking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it is for everybody. Um, well, we're almost out of time, but we're going to wrap mm-hmm. up with a lightning wrap round. Lightning round. Oh, so boy. I have a bunch of, I have a bunch of short coffee. I have a bunch of short questions that I'm going to ask you. And hopefully you'll give short answers. However, <laughs> lightning round answers always go long. As you know, as you know, and I'm very totally good at being fine. concise and short. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, okay, here we go. Lightning round. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Question number one: What is your favorite animated Disney movie? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm just like, oh, you know, I'm going to be like, well, burp, burp. okay. Um, you gotta pick one. Okay. I honestly, I think it might be Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. All right, nice. But re- really, it's probably Beauty and the Beast. Okay, yeah, it's one of those two. There's a lot to that one. I'm it's gra- good. That's you made me appreciate. Asterisk. You made me appreciate the yeah. animated Beauty and the Beast yeah. with your critique of the live action. Okay, you know what? I'm going to go with Beauty and the Beast. But okay. that's like Beauty and the Beast asterisk. Okay, got it. What is your least favorite animated Disney movie? Um, Pocahontas. Pocahontas. Okay, nice. Uh, also, a good Lindsay Ellis video on that one. <laughs> uh, which Transformers movie is the best? One. One. Of the Bay movies? Uh, yeah, of the Bay movies. One. Yeah, Defin- not, not the definitely one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, who is your favorite of the dwarves who set out alongside Bilbo in The Hobbit? Oin. Oh, Oin. Okay. <laughs> who is he for listeners who may not uh, know? He, he was the guy, uh, John Callan, who played him. He was the one that, oh. um, the guy that we interviewed for The Hobbit and also the, uh, um, the guy he, right. he was the one with the the like ear ear horn because he's deaf. Right, right. Okay. But I guess if I'm, if I'm like just from a character standpoint, well, you know what? I am a little partial to Thorin. Yeah. Just, but but just you know, I think that's not fair because like the rest of the dwarves don't really get personality. <laughs> it's a much bigger arc. Um, what is the worst part of making a YouTube video essay? Um, having it out there and being like oh man i wish i could change that <laughs> <laughs> not being able to be like yeah because really people, people don't understand like uh once it's up it's up mm-hmm. you know it's like i can change it if it's like on patreon but once it's public i can't mm-hmm. really do anything about it and people will be like well you said this problematic thing and i'll mm-hmm. be like yeah i agree and they're like well you should take it down like no it doesn't work that way yeah <laughs> definitely one of the, uh, the benefits of writing is that you can make a correction yeah after yeah publication. youtube you can't make corrections who is one youtube essayist that more people should be watching contrapoints Contrapoints. What um? What is what is Contrapoints? Contrapoints is more. Uh, well, her Twitter bio is sex, drugs, and social justice. So mm-hmm. I think that's the pretty. That sums it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sums it up pretty well. Nice. Um, is Premiere bad, or am I the problem? Um, you're the problem. I'm the problem. Okay. Premiere uh, Len- is good, actually. Premiere is good. Okay. <laughs> Lens flare, good or bad? Um, 
It's like saying movies, good or bad. <laughs> um, overused. Overused. Uh, Ray or Luke Skywalker? I don't know. I think I, we need to we need the the trilogy to be complete before we can answer that. Oh, for now, okay. I'll say Luke. Okay, for now, Luke. And last one, similar. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Kylo Ren or Darth Vader? Kylo Ren. Yeah. I, you know, I like Kylo. I think he's actually an interesting character. I, I agree with you, actually. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where he goes. And th- th- of course, that yeah. question will also be easier to answer. Yeah. I, mean, I, like, I really movie. liked his arc in The Last Jedi. I hate how this has become like a culture war thing we need to battle over. I know. I do, too. I love I like love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I agree. I, it bums me out. Um, Lindsay, it has been very, very fun having you on the show. Thank um you. Do you have anything that you would like to, anything you'd like to hype? Any place people can find you? Obviously, you're on YouTube you're on twitter or anything else um, yeah our it's lit is on pbs uh, digital studios youtube channel and nice. also uh the next six episodes are going to be on facebook watch i think exclusively for a few weeks before they move to youtube um yeah i think that that's 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 the only projects i have readily pimpable right now nice well that's there's <laughs> a lot of stuff there's a lot there for people to watch i'm sure if you oh. go and track you down thanks so much for coming on the show thank you it's a lot of fun And we are back. Thank you to Lindsay Ellis for coming on the show. Kirk, let's talk about some web slinging, shall we? Yes, we okay, shall. So, so before we get into some more Spider-Man talk, now that you have actually played the game, um, we are going to talk about the story leading up to and including the Jefferson Davis honoring ceremony. So if you have not gotten past the Jefferson Davis honoring ceremony, now is your time to skip ahead or turn off the show or, uh, I don't know, throw your iPhone down a sewer or something. I don't Unsubscribe know, to every podcast and your subscriptions. Yeah, just stop listening to Call podcasts. your parents, tell them you love them. I don't know. You know. Yeah, whatever you want. There's you a lot of things you can do. Yeah, do whatever you want, really. Yeah, whatever you want. Anything. Just you're a human being. You have just do will. not listen to us spoil the story. If you have so, Kirk. So last night you played through that ceremony. Um, you have now seen that. That's probably like the the first act break. I would say you've gone from act one to act two. What do you think? I am really, really impressed with this game. So. I will totally retract my skepticism that Thank I you. that I Thank repeatedly you. gave you that it was as Thank good you. as you said. It is as good as you said. I'm I'm frankly I don't want to say I'm blown away. I am I'm amazed by the amazing. The Spider-Man. storytelling is just incredible. That's I, the thing. everything it's, is really really good. It's just yeah. I mean it's ah it's just a very very well done game in a in every kind of possible way. I'm really amazed by it. I'm like you said. Yeah, the writing is good. It's far better than I would have expected. Even moving at times, the sequence we were just talking about, I was really into that and felt emotions after it. I was sad. I mean, it was really striking. Yeah, so, I think, so give us give us a little description to talk about what happened. Okay, so, well, this the sequence where uh, Miles Morales' dad is, is killed and where there's this horrible tragedy and this bombing And you play as him running through the wreckage? Yeah, which, you know, is the second time you play as a sort of non-Spider-Man character. And it's actual gameplay. You have to sneak around the guys and mm-hmm. get to him. And then just afterward, there's this scene where Peter goes and talks to Miles and tries to console him and tell him, you know, I've been through this. I know how you feel. But Miles totally can't hear him. I'm sorry for your loss. 
Do I know you? I'm Peter Parker. I was at City Hall when... Look, I know you don't know me, but I just wanted to say... I know what you're going through. Uh, that's what you were going to say, right? Or it all gets easier with time. Or don't worry. It's, it's part of God's plan. I'm sorry. I was just try trying to help. I know. And it's just... I, it's... That is a big emotional beat, and it's played really, really well and well-written and well-acted, and I was moved by it. I mean, I just felt like I was watching two people deal with a horrible thing. But even the small bits, right before then, there's a scene where Peter is kind of, you know, Peter and MJ are in this kind of, uh, we broke up for reasons you don't know, but we still really like each other, and the performance and motion caption, capture is really doing a good job of kind of conveying the ambiguity there, and he they're yep. kind of talking in the crowd, and he says, hey, you know let's get together and over coffee and we can compare notes because she's investigating the same story and then he says or you know i could i could come over and make you dinner or not whatever and they're both kind of laughing awkwardly and it's just really well done i mean the character stuff is just very very well done i yes. like yuri lowenthal's performance as peter parker it's just wonderful i think he perfectly captures yeah, do you see what i meant last week about like the naughty dog influence and the subtlety in the storytelling that i think is 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 there is not there in most big video games yeah and i wonder if that's always going to be seen as a naughty dog influence just because it's video games because really this is just good it's just whatever it's just good yes. acting and good storytelling yeah. it's just that naughty dog was kind of they were the first people are among the sure. first to really do it on sure. that budget and that well scale. i just think of uncharted 4 in terms of that relationship between drake mm -hmm. and elena like this reminds me of that not in terms of what the actual relationship is like but in terms of the 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 way that a relationship is portrayed in this really real way yeah and just the 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 overall like just the dialogue the way that people talk the the little jokes the little writing there's so much care put into all of it and i'm just increasingly i'm just really into that i mean it's something i loved about hollow knight as a completely different comparison but that was also a game. It was just clear that a lot of care was put into every screen and everything you did. This game is operating on this unbelievable level of polish, and we can talk about that in a second. But there's still this level of care and attention to detail, and just people—the people who made this game clearly love Spider-Man and clearly wanted to tell a very good story about you know people. And they—I think they have so far, anyways. You know, obviously I'm only one act in, but I think so far they've done a very, very good job. And that's in addition to all of the just fun shit that's in the game that you do when you're not watching the story um, yeah there's a lot more a lot more story to come can we talk about can we talk about the in-world the audio thing my viral tweet and the audio thing yeah for a minute? talk about going megavi so what what's it like to have tens of thousands of retweets it's beautiful i mean i feel i feel four inches taller and um uh 20 IQ points it, smarter yeah than it's, I did it's made you a got, better person <laughs> before i got sixty-one thousand likes on a tweet uh so over the week i was playing this game and i I noticed this kind of thing. This is like the sort of thing I listen to and I don't know, I'm an auditory person in general. And I was like, I feel like the voice actor is doing a different take depending on whether he's swinging, Peter's swinging on his web or standing still. You said a mouthful, Doc. Take care. You said a mouthful, Doc. Take care. Yeah, he was unusually combative. Anyway, thanks again for dinner. What do I owe you? Yeah, he was unusually combative. Anyway, thanks again for dinner. What do I owe you? Looks like I got some free time. Maybe now's a good time to look into that mask. Looks like I got some free time. 
Maybe now's a good time to look into that mask. And so I, you know, pretty quickly was pretty sure that was what was happening, but then I AB'd it and recorded it, tweeted it out, and of course, people, I don't think anyone had really pointed that out that clearly, and so everyone thought that was very cool and shared it, and I posted about this on Kotaku, some of the developers were my mentions explaining how they did it. It's actually not, I don't think, the kind of thing that's super rocket science. I mean, it's just crossfading between two different takes, but I do think that as a structural thing, it's probably hard to do, and I don't, I can't think of another action adventure game. So you have to pay for double the voice recording. And it's hard for, I think, for Yuri Lowenthal, for the actor, to do such a good job of kind of conveying, you know, he's talking clearly, but you can hear that he's exerting himself. But, you know, Spider-Man doesn't really exert himself that much. So so I'm I'm guessing that, um, I I don't know this at all, so I'm very much just speculating right now, but oftentimes when you see, and I know this because of the Double Fine documentary, but when you see like a voice actor recording lines, they'll do a bunch of different takes of the same line. Um, And I'm sure this is the case a lot of the time so i wouldn't be surprised if yuri lowenthal was very used to just like going in there and be like okay here's an exhausted take here's a normal take here's a- right so, right so but then i again, wouldn't be shocked if that part was pretty normal for him well for well, you're right but it's still impressive the way the consistency oh, with yeah. which he's the, given the performance the quality the quality because, is incredible yeah oh and it doesn't sound as though they're trying to make it so that they had all these different options to choose from it sounds as though they're trying to make it so that they can go back and forth between these two distinct options seamlessly you know if you're in the air and he's talking and then you land he sounds strained in the air and then in his next line he sounds like he's landed and he's not strained which is and you would never notice there were a lot of people you know I have all these Twitter responses so many people saying I thought maybe they were doing this but then I just thought no way or people just saying I never noticed that and then but I think your brain does notice it you know even if you don't consciously notice it and there's just so much stuff like that in the game have you noticed if you let your controller turn off you get this special little your controller turned off and it has this little spider-man animated guy frowning and then you turn it on and he appears and he's smiling next to the controller (laughs) they've just they clearly just had enough time to make this game as ridiculously yeah, polished. There's a lot of, yeah, a lot of little stuff. The, my favorite little detail is how anytime you like knock someone off a ledge, you'll always see him get Spidey webbed back to the building, so <laughs> yeah, you're not killing always, anybody. There have been those funny examples, which I remember from Arkham Knight, too, where there are just times where he definitely killed somebody. <laughs> like the, oh, just because yeah. the game can't handle, you know, a guy yeah. was webbed to a car, and then the car exploded in some unrelated cutscene, and okay, that guy died, which always just kind of cracks me up and doesn't strike yep. me as a problem. But it is, that is impressive. Um, can we talk about the music for a second yeah yeah, so you the music pointed is out. incredible. That another little detail that that when you start swinging, the music starts swelling. Like mm-hmm. it goes from a silent state of you just like hearing the the random little audio of what's it called sound uh, room noise of uh, New York City, and then you start swinging and the music starts swelling, and it's like dum, dum, dum. Mm-hmm. it's this epic like you're swinging into a superhero mu- uh, movie. It's amazing. Yeah, you posted about that last week, and I'm I've, I I told you this. Uh, already but i'm fairly snobbish about that kind of post and it was i actually totally agree with you um i think that the web swinging music that plays when you're going through the city is really well done so the music was composed by a guy named john paisano who i whose work i'm not really very familiar with what i find really interesting about it is this sort of genre of superhero music 
is um, a, a very rich and uh, well-populated genre at this point for movies because there are so many superhero movies. And a lot of the same composers do a lot of, you know, a lot of the current Marvel movies. But over the years, there have been a bunch of different composers. Um, there's a really good video on this, if anybody hasn't seen this, the Every Frame of Painting video called the Marvel, something about Marvel movies music. And it's kind of about how their music is all pretty boring, which is a true, true, I think, except for the Alan Silvestri stuff. Anytime you see Alan Silvestri's name in the credits for a Marvel movie, Infinity War, Avengers, uh, I think he maybe did a Captain America, I can't remember. It's always the good music. Anyways, uh, if you listen to this Spider-Man music, so I'm going to play a few examples, actually. The very beginning of this game, when you turn the game on, this is what you hear. So... Though it's two chords. That's just two chords. It's an F minor chord and then a B flat major chord. So that's one minor to four major. It's basically just, it's a really common chord progression, but it just immediately is like the most superhero shit you've ever heard. The Marvel, little Marvel comic, you know, Marvel presents thing plays and you hear these two chords and you know, you're, you just instinctively know that this is going to be superhero shit, which has always fascinated me that just these two chords minor and it starts. So minor is kind of, you know, darker and then it resolves to the four major and it's like nah, dramatic and happy. Those two chords well, are hasn't the that always of, been just the MCU chords. Don't they play them before every Marvel movie? No, that that's different. No? That's a G augmented actually, or like a G with a flat sixth. I went and figured this out. Um, it. It's that's a different sound that actually I'll play that. That sounds like this. So it's it's there are a couple of like tricks that people use in these movies that that have these they immediately they're like a shorthand an emotional shorthand just like a minor when you hear a minor song you feel sad that's also emotional shorthand music is really good for that and this music is very very good at conveying that I think it's also doing something else subtle that I think is really cool and that is I think at many points this game is very specifically calling back to Spider-Man from uh, 2002 I think the Sam Raimi the first Spider-Man movie there's so Great many movie. Spider-Man movies that's the best I mean well Spider-Man 2 is maybe the best yeah, but those two, two is the best and those movies are just wonderful i mean i love and will always love well, let's say alfred, Mol- alfred alfred molina is uh, so good yes that and Spider-Man that's 2. really spider-man 2 is the best one because he's yeah. so good in it and because peter and mj get more to do uh, i think toby mcguire is a great spider-man anyways um so that music was by danny elfman who everyone i mean he composed the batman theme that everybody knows he's composed a billion things he composed the simpsons, uh, the simpsons theme, theme. And, yeah he's he's like everybody knows danny elfman he was also the lead singer of oingo boingo which will probably be a music pick for me one of these weeks anyway um so After Toto's Africa. check this out if you listen to the music here's the music that plays during uh this is the beginning of the music from 2002's spider-man theme it sounds like this okay this is the music that plays right after that intro during the main menu of the ps4 spider-man game
so you can hear they're just very very similar and i last thought on this is that the the very beginning of this Spider-Man game, I think is amazing um, because it just starts, uh, I keep using the word amazing, sorry, I know that's corny because it's the amazing Spider-Man, so I'll use a different word. I think it's very impressive and good um, because you you know it starts out with this silly pop song and Peter's getting ready and then basically right away you just jump out the window and there you go. And yep. if you recall, I remember being in the theater and seeing Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man and the last you know, maybe 30 seconds of that movie is just Spider-Man just joyfully swinging through the city and he's like, woohoo! And he like flips through the air and it's, you know, if you watch it now, actually the CGI is a little dated, but it doesn't matter because the music is soaring and like the Danny Elfman choir is like, ah! in the background and he like flips around and he lands I think you know maybe on the Chrysler building he lands on some iconic building and the camera swoops around him the game knows exactly that that's what you want that those five minutes when I was in the theater I remember just falling out of my chair you know with excitement at that and I you it just lets you do that immediately and that to me just told me from the minute one okay these guys get exactly what they're doing they're picking the right spider-man they get spider-man they're doing it and uh i loved it i i i really yeah i really like this game i think it's really it's good. good stuff yeah i'm glad that you are enjoying it as much as i did um it's it's gotten do you see what i'm saying about how like the core mechanics are so good that you don't even yeah. mind the fact that it's a ubisoft collectathon ubisoft style collectathon. no because i because getting around is so fun i mean I, right i'm not and the so first like yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's like you're swinging around and you never want to use fast travel because swinging no. is so much fun. But you're swinging around and it's like, oh, hell yeah, I'll go and do this little crime thing, even though it's the same crime I've done 20 mm-hmm. times already. But it's just so much fun to swing and fling webs and punch people in this game that I might as well just keep doing that. And it's just very enjoyable. Um, the story, as you'll see, is a very good length and it just never uh, wears out its welcome. But uh, but the just swinging from place to place is just so much fun that you'll just keep wanting to do it uh, even after the story ends and even when you're not doing story stuff. There's, um, yeah, I, I really, the the mechanics, the web traversal mechanics are such a great mix of um, accessible and kind of foolproof and yet also rewarding of mastery. And I think like mm-hmm. a lot of these kinds of games really work very hard to find that balance and they really have got it where you know, I'm going for style points. I'm not, I can get to from point A to point B just by holding down the trigger basically and steering Peter in that direction. He'll do it and he'll look pretty cool when he does it and it'll still be fun. But you know, when I get really into doing the the timed thing where you do the double trigger pull and then you land and like hit it at the right time and it like blows him forward and you can kind of build up your momentum and go really, really fast. And have you unlocked the trick jumps yet? Yeah, oh yeah. Or the the move, there are all these moves I have to repeatedly go back, um, and this is true for combat too, which we'll talk maybe talk about in a second, but I have to repeatedly go back through the um, the the control, like the just moves list, because there are actually a lot of moves, and I forget a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And one of the moves is when you're running along the wall, if you hold down circle, he jumps around the corner and shoots a yep. web and then swings like a straight, you know, he does a kind of a 45 degree turn. And I, you know, you can kind of just do that naturally without doing that but if you get the better i get at that stuff the more it just looks really cool and i constantly feel you know good about it the camera work which i also think the camera work in arkham knight is really incredible they've got they're so good at descending the lens and moving it in a certain way behind him so that it always feels like you're moving and you're you know you're you're able to see what's happening but it's so exciting I, the sequence where the helicopter chase sequence that was at e3 where he yep. chases this helicopter and then he jumps on it and he fights the guys and then the helicopter's crashing and he grabs it and sort of swings it in between two buildings i was just it was i had seen that i'd kind of forgotten it but i was falling out of my chair that was just 
so well done. It was mostly a cutscene, but it was amazing looking. I really, I was, I was really impressed by that. So re- remind me, um, have you seen? Is Mister Negative in the game for you yet? Have he you seen he him appears yet? during the the. Um, the the sequence the, I, the final sequence where yeah where right. Jefferson Davis dies um, just for a minute and do you and play it, as Spider Man in that sequence at all or, or no is that... no okay. you don't so you okay. see him and of course I read Mike Fahey's a primer and knew who Mister Fit Negative was so I knew that Mister Lee was going to be a bad guy or, or a good guy and a bad guy at the same time mm-hmm. um, but no I haven't really met him so I actually don't really know the plot yet either I mean Peter's working for Doctor Octavius and I don't know where that's going so I, I'm assuming you know they showed that trailer at E3 with I guess the Sinister Six in it so I'm assuming all of these villains are going to show up Shocker's been in the game actually rare low point is that second boss fight against Shocker that was mm-hmm. kind of weak I thought just dodging his death rays over and over and over again and then dropping yeah. things on him that was kind of bad yeah some of the boss fights you'll see all have pretty predictable patterns yeah. but none of them the shocker was definitely the worst of them um yeah so so i'm curious to hear what do you think is gonna happen oh my god i'm not making any predictions you're not tricking me into making predictions about well, the story like, what do you based on the story that you saw <sighs> i have so no far, idea you, you know I'm curious to know what they're going to do with the homeless shelter that he's working. I think one thing that's really struck me about this game is the way that they portray the people in the homeless shelter and they yeah, repeatedly really interesting. they characterize them and they have Peter really there's this part where Peter gets evicted from his apartment and he comes in and he's just talking to a woman there who he's talked to a few times and says she's like oh you know what's up and he says oh well I kind of got evicted from my apartment she says oh sounds like you kind of need to be here and he's very careful to say oh yeah you know there's there's nothing wrong with needing to be here and I guess you're right I do and it's just I don't know it was a really thoughtful and cool exchange that just i don't know i I really like that i I think the way that he's working with homeless people and helping them the way that they're talking about because homelessness is like that it's not you know people just have shitty things happen and then next thing you know oh fuck i don't have a job and like i got evicted and so i i thought that was really cool and i'm i'm curious where they're going to go with that just because mr lee is a big part of that homeless shelter clearly Mm -hmm. he's both a very good man who built this incredible institution and also a horrible villain who's done something really horrible um yeah and you mentioned this last week when you were talking about the game, and I think this is right on, is that the game is very lighthearted and fun and breezy. I mean, Peter's very funny. The, his banter is perfectly Spider-Man, where he's making fun of people while he beats them up. And then this sequence, this this sequence at the at the town hall or whatever, where where the bombs go off and people are being killed, and I mean, holy shit, it was so such a huge um, tonal shift, but it worked beautifully. I well, think. that's why it hits even harder. Because exactly, it's just such a contrast from the lighthearted humor right. and breeziness of the rest of the game, as opposed to something like Arkham, where I was just right. like, oh yeah, this person died. Okay, whatever. Yeah, right. Of uh, course, Arkham something horrible is going to happen. Yeah, um, Arkham Knight. I just I really enjoyed. Arkham Arkham Knight, but it just did not resonate with me earlier mm-hmm. this year the way that Spider-Man did, um, in large part because of that, because I just enjoy, and you'll see, the relationship stuff with Spider-Man and MJ just yeah. continues to be really, really interesting. I mean, and- it's, it's always fascinated me why Spider-Man is the most likable and relatable hero, which he really is, and you know, for a lot of reasons, a million people have pointed out. Well, because he's a normal dude and not a billionaire exactly. psychopath. Oh, well, compared, just compared to Batman, or an alien like Superman, or an Amazonian right. like Wonder yeah. Woman, or whatever. Yeah, there is that, and it's just, there's something funny about the fact that the most relatable superhero is also the fucking weirdest. I mean, 
there's a scene uh, I can't do it justice but there's a scene at a crime scene where um, MJ is sort of there as a reporter and then Peter kind of surprises her and he's up on top of this uh, fire truck and he's sitting there and they have a little conversation and then he kind of crawls around the side of the spider truck or of the fire truck and then he's talking to her and it's just he looks weird because he's like a fucking giant spider and they're yep. just she's kind of they're kind of flirting but it's just like oh hey it's me your ex-boyfriend this weird fucking spider guy who climbs on walls and shoots webs at people and, and yet, she's just totally fine with it yeah and but because he's like this relatable kind of kid and he's always he's trying to get his shit together and figure his life out he's still such a relatable character it's always just tickled me that that's this weird superpower he's a spider spiders are gross he shoots webs all over everything he climbs <laughs> on the wall what and yet i like really like him and always have he's always been one of my favorite superheroes i love that uh in this game you just mary jane has just accepted him and knows who he is already yeah. and is knows everything about him and is just used to him doing this weird shit like climbing around because it would have been so lame if it was just like all right now we have the obligatory scene where mj finds out who mm-hmm. peter parker is spider-man oh my god um so it is just so nice that this happens eight years after and have you been going around collecting all the backpacks and stuff because i have there's Those some really, really fun nice, yeah. lines um just i i imagine lots of throwbacks to uh, comics and references to everything but even me as a non-comics fan I really enjoyed just seeing those and being like oh yeah Sandman I remember him from Spider-Man 3 and oh this reference to this thing uh, mm-hmm. I remember that um, a lot of good stuff in there uh, Yeah, for, and just a from, sense of his history right just that he's been doing this for a while everything is sort of established he knows Harry right. Oscorp is, which explains is, why he's yeah. so get good at fighting even from the mm-hmm. beginning is mm-hmm. because he's been doing this for 8 years it's really cool um, and really interesting and and uh, you'll yeah. There's more stuff that I won't spoil that that you'll see. Um, but yeah, just a total total package of a video game, as you said. Um, just really good stuff. Um, yeah. All right, why don't we talk off-topic stuff real quick, um, and then you can give us your music pick of the week. Sounds good to me. So yeah, why don't you start off by talking a little bit uh, about what you've been reading and watching and whatnot. Nice. Well, um, I wanted to share one thing, just uh, some thoughts on one thing that I saw when I was at XOXO. Um, one of the nights is this was a sort of film, you know, people showing off their film and animation. And uh, Lisa Hannawalt, who is one of the co-creators of BoJack Horseman, she's the artist who kind of came up with the look of that um, of that show. She came up to show to talk about her upcoming show, which is called Tuca and Birdie, and is also a Netflix animated show. And stars two birds. It does not take place within the BoJack um, universe, but it looks Sad. you know it's her art style, so it looks kind of similar, and it's talking animals. And she's fascinating and seems really cool and she showed us a clip of the show that i think it's not like a full episode it was just kind of a part of an episode or maybe i'm not sure exactly but it was really cool um she asked us like not to get into specifics so i'm not going to do that um though people probably talked about it um but it was just unfinished like really unfinished and they were were sending it off to the animation studio i think she said in in south korea that was going to do a lot of the actual you know, polishing. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And it was really cool. A lot of it was in black and white. Um, A lot of the mouths weren't animated on the various characters. There was a lot of shorthand and you just kind of, it was, it did not look finished. The audio didn't sound finished. And yet it was so cool. It was really, really cool to get to see that. It made me wish I could see a BoJack Horseman episode before they send it off. You know, one of the ones that I've already seen and just Mm -hmm. understand more about that process. Cause I did not realize that you could do that, that you could make an episode 
get it to that point and then just kind of send it off to another studio and then they finish it. Um, well, you probably have to go through rounds of notes. Oh, and of course, of course, I'm stuff. sure. But it, it yeah. was still a, a cool illustration of a, cool. a phase in that process I haven't seen. So Fun fact, by the way. Also, in addition to the raid launching on Friday, new season of BoJack goes live on Friday. Yep. And a new season of American Vandal goes live on Friday. Yeah, so, and like Treme has a new season going. I'm just it's, leaving for two weeks and missing everything. Well, it'll still be there when you get back. <laughs> you're just, yeah, you're, but will I be able to raid blind? That's the question. That is the question. Um, I bet you can. Anything else? People. Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, a couple other things, or maybe just one other thing. Um, I finished Altered Carbon, the first Altered Carbon book, which I just as an update to anybody who likes that movie or like that yeah, show you, or likes you those liked books. it, right? You were you were high on the book. I no? liked it when I started it, and I liked it at the end. It was really fun. It was really cool. I think it just does a great job of painting this fascinating. Um, sci-fi it takes one concept and just builds a whole world off of it yeah i, I cool. definitely want to read the next books i know they're going to do more seasons in the show i actually want to rewatch the show now that i've read the book and have this way better idea of who everybody is yeah. um so yeah i like it i like the show too kind of recommend them both they're they're both good um i've read a couple of interesting books um nice i just finished this book called bad blood by john Carreyu. And it's about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, the the wild story of uh, the the oh, wannabe Steve yeah. Jobs oh, man. and her scam company that mm-hmm. uh, said it was making these blood testers. And yeah, it's a wild story. A lot of it has already been reported. So after reading it, um, there's not a lot in there that's like brand new information, but it's still a really good account of the story. Um, and yeah, really interesting. It made me, as a reporter, it made me raise a, raise a few eyebrows as as many of these stories do, where it's like, wait a minute, how do you know this? Were you there? How did you know about this? <laughs> you should this? read Bob Is Woodward's new book. Dialogue? Doesn't he report that whole book that it way? Would, yeah, it would just make me crazy. Yeah. Um, a lot of, all these books do. All these books where it's like recreated scenes and dialogue mm-hmm. and it's clearly fictionalized and yeah, they all drive me a little nuts as a reporter, but still a very enjoyable read and clearly very well researched and reported story. Um, and he actually talks, it's like, so the book is divided into two main sections, really. The first section is like, here's the actual story of Theranos. And then the second section is, here's when I got the tip about it and started trying to report this out. And he talks about how Theranos would hire private investigators to try to squash his sources and get them to stop talking. And there was a whole lot of like legal maneuvering. And uh, it was just a really interesting uh, behind-the-scenes account nice. of the reporting. And so just as a reporter, I was super interested in that part. Um, yeah, really, really interesting book. I do recommend it. Um, and then right now, I just started last night reading this book called Springfield Confidential by Mike Reese. And Mike Reese has worked on The Simpsons for 30 years since it started. Um, and he has written this tomb that is like full of jokes and Simpsons history and interesting anecdotes and stories. And uh, I started reading it last night and was so hooked that I just couldn't put it down and read like 100 pages before bed. Um, um, it's if you're a Simpsons uh, aficionado as I am, you will love this book, and I highly recommend it to anyone nice. who loves The Simpsons. So check that out, Springfield Confidential. Sounds um, good. Yeah. Uh, all right, Kirk. It's time for your music pick of the week. Nice. So first of all, before I start, I will say that I am actually. I think I am going to do a standalone thing um, about. A certain song that we talked about last week. Some people really? want to hear it. Yeah, okay. I think I am. I might do it. I, I've been thinking, this is actually something I've been thinking about doing for a while is, is maybe there's like a side project about 
you know, talking about cool music and why it's cool. Yeah, blessing the rains. Yeah, taking more time to kind of show that. So if I do do that, I'll talk about it or I'll point people taking to it. Taking more time to do the things you want to do. Yeah, yes. I get it. Yes, exactly. Um, bless the rains down in Africa. And then I will bless the rains down in Africa. Um, so that's just a little tease of that. Um, stay tuned. So my music pick of the week is by a band with a terrible name that's very good. This band is called Snarky Puppy. And um, the tune is called Lingus. They're sort of a big-ass uh, advanced jazz ensemble that is a current a, prop, a current a going concern they're currently doing stuff so i'll play a couple different clips from this tune here here's the how the tune actually sounds So as you can hear, it's a sort of big group. It's pretty rockin', pretty funky. Uh, it's all instrumental. And the thing that makes this recording Lingus so good is this guy, Corey Henry, who's a really well-known uh, organ and piano player in New York, really burning. He takes this killer solo that sounds like this. And then once he gets going, there's this section at the end that's my actual favorite section of the song. I'm now going to play it for you. It's when he trades with the horn section. So the horns are playing like written stuff and he is um, soloing. So it's kind of going back and forth between his improvisation and the horn section. Here it is. So this band is super sick. They have a ton of records. I'm a big fan of them. I think I've heard the criticism of them that they're kind of this type of jazz that I, in in jazz circles is kind of called institutional jazz, um, which is they're all very uh, jazz educated jazz players. Um, they I think a lot of them went to the University of North Texas, which like I went to University of Miami. Do people Those get criticism of, for being educated in jazz? Well, yeah, in jazz, kind of because it's so. I'll explain. Because it's all um, about what you don't know. Yes, it's all about well. 
<laughs> you know, I'm not totally sure. That, no, that's not right, but it's, I'm trying to think if I could square that circle. No. But um, so basically, uh, University of North Texas is like one of these big, really, you know, impressive jazz programs. I went to University of Miami, which is smaller, but, you know, another kind of, you know, well-regarded jazz program. A lot of these programs have it down to a science. You go there, you know, if you're if you come in, you're serious, you work really hard, you get good at jazz. I mean, they're they're they've gotten very very good at breaking down and like kind of codifying the language of jazz. Um, Snarky Puppy's music is definitely like this really advanced but very precise and very clean and you know well arranged and perfect kind of version of jazz, which isn't exactly what jazz has always been about. I mean, if you go listen to like John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk playing a live record somewhere, it's not about that. It's about something else. It's about different energy um and so there's definitely some criticisms of snarky puppy that they're kind of this you know uber perfect clean institutional type of jazz i hear those and i i it there are tunes of theirs where i'm like this kind of just sounds like a really good college jazz ensemble but their best stuff is so freaking good and i'm such a sucker for just killer technique and really good arrangements that i still like them anyways so if you're into instrumental music um they're really cool to check out all of their albums as an interesting trivia note are recorded with an audience in the studio with them so they kind Whoa, of that's wild and you can watch them all on youtube also which is very fun because it's more fun to watch these guys play because they're so good and while you watch oh, that's the interesting video, so i always assume that all article all every single album that's produced is going to always do things in pieces and like splice the best takes right together so that's their like that. whole thing so is this they is never just, do that i think they've oh, never wow. done a cut because they're like we just do it all at once they have a great album wow. actually called i think it's called family dinner with a bunch of really great singers on each track so does that mean they don't do things like i don't know have the same singer like echo to harmonize on right himself? there's no and they're they do that stuff live they'll do processing on their bass or on the guitars and stuff but no there's not any like multi-track stuff happening interesting and and it's fun to watch the videos of them in particular actually watch the video for lingus it's super fun because you you can see how ridiculous Corey Henry is when he's playing and also watch the people around him losing their shit as he's just totally going off at the end, including actually one of the other keyboard players from the band in the video sort of sitting behind him with his headphones on. And then at one point he just takes his headphones off and is like, fuck this. And he just gets up and like walks away because Corey Henry is like shredding so hard. So those are really, really fun to watch. And it's a Very great cool. idea, I think, on their part to always yeah, sort of do that. Do that. Rad. And, yeah. Wow, so they're a great band worth checking out. Very cool. All right, Kirk, that is it for this week. I am leaving on Friday. I will be on in Spain and Lisbon, Portugal. I'm going from I'm going to Barcelona, Spain, then Granada, Spain, then Cordoba, then Sevilla, oh, and man. then Lisbon, Portugal. I'm very excited, but I will be gone for the next two weeks. So yes. y'all will not hear from me again until um, the beginning of October. So, uh, yeah, you'll have to find some fill-ins, maybe just yes, we have. do your music episodes uh, <laughs> for the next two weeks. We have some exciting plans for a fill-in, though we will miss you when you're gone. So, looking forward to that. But have fun, man. That sounds like a great trip. Yeah, I'm super stoked. Um, we, My wife has already booked a ton of restaurants because Excellent. we're like, the reason we are going on this trip <laughs> is basically to eat at the best possible restaurants. So uh-huh. we're like going all out. And nice. Just <laughs> We're like, this is our honeymoon. We only get to do this once. We're mm-hmm. going full like all out all the way all out and then when we get back we'll just go on hardcore diets and stop eating for the next <laughs> sounds like a good months. way to do it yeah that's that's what you do right you you just crash that's that's a healthy lifestyle right yeah sure that's easy. live live by extremes it's very american exactly that's a good way to exactly. do things <laughs> um all right kirk i will see you when i am back goodbye all right safe travels kotaku split screen is an official podcast of kotaku.com 
It's produced by Jason Schreier and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the podcast and also wrote and performed our theme song and other music. We're part of the Fusion Podcast Network, where Mandana Mofiti is executive producer of audio. You can find us on popular podcast services like Panoply, NPR Now, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. And we hope that you'll leave us a review if you like what you hear. Find old episodes at kotaku.com slash splitscreen. Email us at splitscreen at kotaku.com.